When is the last time you listened to a podcast about web development, web design, and small business and didn't fall asleep? Yes, we cover web development, web design, and small business, but like actual human beings with personalities. If you're a beginner, we're not going to talk over your head. It's more like asking your buddy for help. We have guests, we have fun, and let me tell you, these two can get off on a tangent. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to HTML All The Things Podcast. This is Matt Lawrence and Mike Curran. That's right, everybody. We are back, and this is episode 211, How We Make Small Customer Budgets Work. I may tweak that title a little bit, might mess around with it a bit, but basically, just as the title suggests, we're talking about customer budgets that just didn't quite make it there. Generally, a customer comes to you, they have a project, you have a meeting with them, you do an analysis of what they're asking, you then make a formal quote for them. And their budget comes in just a little bit short or even maybe a lot short. So we're going to talk about how we make these smaller customer budgets and these more specifically, these customer budgets that just didn't quite make it there work for a given project. Now, I do want to have a brief thing in here that we did last week, introduce last week's episode as 211. We have multiple episodes kind of in the middle of being produced. And one of the episodes that we were going to release earlier, which we still have not released, is not quite ready for prime time. We're still working on it. And therefore, all the numbers got jumbled. But the content is going to be largely the same. So no big deal there. Just an FYI for anyone tracking numbers. So if this sounds interesting to you and you want to support the show, you can go check us out on that Patreon, leave a review or rating on your podcast app, join us in our discord server or share this with your friends. And actually one more thing. Um, I said, you know, we are back, but it's actually just a solo episode with me today because I messed up the schedule. We usually record on a certain day. It was a long weekend and I pushed some stuff around and then forgot that it's a long weekend here and everything got pushed back a day and it was a big mess. So it was my mistake, but I'm here. Let's just do this episode right now. So I want to start off this episode with an introduction that talks about what I mean by a small customer budget or more specifically a budget that just didn't quite make it there. Beyond that, I'm going to have multiple different methods on how to make things work, such as negotiation, uh, phasing things out, meaning not like phasing it out as in getting rid of it, but making project phases that make sense. So phase one, we do this phase two, we do this, those type of things, the classic sort of budget cuts and when things should be cut, how things should be cut, you know, should we start cutting things willy nilly to make the budget work, that type of thing. And then I have a list with explanations of the pitfalls of some, of some pitfalls, excuse me, and warnings on, you know, what, what little red flags, I guess you could say, are there when it comes to customer budgets, you know, should you take jobs for a portfolio piece when you're undervaluing your work, you know, how much can you undervalue your work? Should you do that? A bunch of different little pitfalls and little things that we've fallen into, or we've seen in the industry that I'm going to sort of warn you about and talk about how to deal with in that last segment there. So right now, introduction, I want to preface this whole episode before we dive into any of the ways that we make small customer budgets work by saying that if the budget didn't quite reach your original quote and you want to work on that project for that client, then you can implement some of these things. 
I do not want you to go out there and say, quote, a $10,000 project only to then have the client say, man, I only have $100. Trying to close that gap is going to be a, a struggle. So when you have a gap like this, it's a far cry from a client budget that is too low to the point where you're not making a profit. What I mean here, because I probably messed that sentence up, is that if someone comes to you and you say, take all their requirements, make a big plan, make up a quote and quote them $10,000, they come back to you and say, oh man, like I'm like, I'm at, I'm at 8,000. Like I'm at 8,000. Maybe I could push it to 8,500. I'm just not quite there. What you're trying to do is you're trying to close the gap so that you want, like, if you want to do this, of course, some people will not budge off the 10,000, but if you want to work with this client or you just want this job or you want portfolio piece, whatever, we'll get into all that in a minute. You can do a couple of things to close that gap because this client with 8,000, with 8,500 of the 10,000 is clearly serious. They didn't come at you with a hundred dollars. They didn't come at you with $2,000. They came at you with something where they're not in the industry and they budgeted something that is, you know, a decent chunk of change, 8,000, 8,500. And they were serious about the project clearly. And so there's ways for you to sort of change the deal, manipulate the deal in order to make it work for both you and the client. Now, many entrepreneurs will start their journey by taking clients with very small budgets. This is just to sort of quickly spin up various portfolio pieces. And this is in the hopes that those portfolio pieces that they'll show off on social media or their portfolio on their site or whatever it is, it, it it's basically a, a hope for greener pastures down the road for clients that have larger budgets and for projects that will challenge them and will make them more money. So that, that greener pasture business wise, right? Now, I'm not saying you don't necessarily do this, right? I'm not saying that, you know, don't ever take uh, a portfolio project like this. Sometimes in the beginning of your career, you know, you're just willing to say, you know what? I wanted 2000 for this. This guy's offering me 500. I'm just going to do what I need the portfolio piece. I'm not saying not to do it, but do this at your own discretion. Make sure the deal makes sense for you. All of this is make sure this deal makes sense for you. Do not make a habit out of going in and being like, you know what, you know, this person's cheap, like, okay, I'll, I'll take the 500, the next job. You know, I wanted a thousand dollars for this job. This guy's offering me 200. I'll take it. Uh, you know, I wanted like 10,000 for this job and this person's offering me 3000. Like don't make a, a habit out of it. And I'll talk more about that in the last segment, that warnings and pitfalls type of uh, area of the show, but just you know, sometimes you do need to undervalue your work in order to sort of get these portfolio pieces. I understand. And, you know, business deals are sometimes lopsided, but just don't make don't make a habit out of it. Now, one really important thing here as well, the reason why I'm doing this whole preface is that I don't want you to take abuse from a customer. Now, of course, I'm of course, you don't want to be, you know, physically or verbally abused, that type of stuff, of course. But what I'm talking about in the context of this episode is Actually, a fun, it's almost a financial abuse, which is a severe undervaluing of your work. Don't work for a dollar an hour, which can really happen with these projects. Websites can be a 10 minute affair with a WordPress theme slash template and spinning it up on some shared hosting or even just a WordPress hosting with a one click install. And that's it. 
And then your client will go in and do a bunch of stuff and they'll put in their own content. They'll do whatever. But some clients will keep calling you, calling you, calling you because they want, oh, that caption doesn't look quite right. I want there to be a better transition here. I want there to be sort of a uh, an animation when this comes in. Why is this loading slowly? Why don't we, you know, the list just keeps ballooning. And so I don't want you to take this sort of financial abuse from customers. Know the value of your work. Know that you're not going to be working, I hope, for a dollar an hour. Now, again, I'm talking in Canadian slash U.S. dollars because they're relatively close within 30 percent of the, each other's value. Canada is generally not always around 30% ish lower than American dollars. So just to give you some context, if you live somewhere where the dollar doesn't apply, just don't, don't make it so that, you know, you're, you're struggling to live, but you're working your butt off trying to put these clients work together. Make sure the budget works for you. Make sure you're not being undervalued by this client because a lot of these clients that will undervalue work or will have very small budgets, don't really care. And they'll constantly call you. They'll constantly bug you. They'll constantly want something, 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 something. And then you'll say, well, man, that's going to cost you, you know, another $50. And they're going to be like, $50, this is outrageous. And then you feel bad. And then you're kind of obligated or you feel obligated, or at least I did. And I do feel obligated to end up like, oh, fine. Like it's just one Saturday. It's just one afternoon. I'll just do this thing for them so that they stop bugging me. And so I would almost consider that financial abuse. And I, I want you to avoid that. This episode, once again, is largely about making that gap smaller when a customer is serious and just isn't quite reaching your quote. Don't be trying to figure out how to do a $10,000 project for $100. And with all that, I think we can move on to the first segment here, which is one of the more obvious ways to make a customer budget work for you and sort of figure out where they're at, where you're at, where their limits are, where your limits are for work, those type of thing. And that is just negotiation, having that back and forth. If you're okay with negotiating prices, of which many people are, there's little harm in exercising your negotiating skills. Negotiation, like anything else, is a tactic, is a skill, and you can practice it and get better at it. You can figure out things to throw into deals. You can figure out ways to get someone to uh, phase out a project where it like, again, have separate phases where you can be like, Hey, let's split this into two phases and let's do this. And you can have a skill in, in this where you can talk to them and you can sort of read them and be like, man, this person like really can't budge. Like I, I'm getting the read on them that they really can't budge on their budget. Or, you know, sometimes they'll, they'll be like, man, you know, I'm at 8,000, you're at 10,000. And you might get the read on them that, oh, maybe they're actually able to hit 12,000 and you only wanted 10 and you know that they're starting low because they want to negotiate. They want to have that back and forth. And so this kind of, you know, when I say read, I mean, like when you're in the situation, you can kind of pick up on things and be like, hmm, I kind of feel like this person is doing X, whatever it is. So this like I said, negotiating skills are good to exercise. I am personally an avid antique collector. I like like collecting the odd antique and I negotiate prices all the time. And so I get a lot of negotiating skills from doing that sort of thing. And I also use it in my business. So for example, like, you know, beyond the price, you can, you know, you can come in there and they could say 8,000 and you're at 10 and you can come in there and sort of fandangle the price and be like, nah, like I'll do nine. And then they come back and go like, I'll do 82. And it's like, nah, like, the lowest I'll go is 85. And then maybe you come to an agreement of some sort. That's sort of the very basics, but you can do more than just change up the price. You can actually change the deal in a lot of different ways, almost an endless amount of ways, because 
all deals are different. All situations are different. And so, for example, if you're making a website for a dentist, you could negotiate for some dentist services, like maybe a teeth cleaning. You haven't been to the dentist in a while. You want a professional teeth cleaning. You don't want to pay for it. So you go to them and you say, you know what? How much is your teeth cleaning? Oh, your teeth cleaning is $500. Well, what I'll do is I'll knock $1,000 off of the deal for the convenience that um, you'll do my teeth cleaning for me and I'll put this project together for you. Done. You could also negotiate other things like deadlines. You could say to them, hey, you know, you wanted this done in a month. If you want it done for this price, I'll do it over two months. You could do stuff like that. You can do a combination of stuff. You could say, hey, you know, I want some of whatever services they're offering. Uh, maybe they're an e-commerce store and you're like, man, I really like your hat and whatever. Like send me, you know, one of your hats, one of your shirts with your branding on it or whatever, whichever one you want. It's a little bit of advertising for them. They're probably getting it at a relatively cheap price from a supplier. So they're making good money. You're saving money because you would normally have to pay the retail price. So then you can knock off some money on the price. And depending on exactly what you're negotiating for, you really could just negotiate for the whole thing. You could say, you know what? I want you to do whatever. Like I want you to do X. Like I want you to send me some clothing, do this and that. Um, or I, you know, I'm starting my own e-commerce. Um, can you give me some pointers? Can you be like a mentor or something for me? Can you help me through this? And I'll just make your little business site or I'll spin up your WooCommerce for free, right? Well, not for free, but for the mentoring and for that, for no cash is basically what I'm saying. So you could, you can sort of negotiate in a variety of different ways. Um, and that's generally like that's generally what I mean is a lot of people will appreciate, will approach, excuse me, negotiating and they will say, you know, oh, all I can do is try to work them up. Like I'll, like if they're at 8,000, all I can do is try to get their price up. Maybe, but you can work in other things of value. Like I said, services, maybe even like saying like, Hey, can you help me with this? Hey, can, Hey, you're a content writer for your own site. Can you write me a few pieces of content? This is going to save, you know, save me time and money. This is going to be convenient for me, stuff like that. And. We have even negotiated in the past for personal items, for car repairs, for different things like personally, like I guess the dentist services would be considered personal as well. It doesn't have to be just for the business side of things. It can be for personal things. Now, I will say, make sure that you check and follow your local jurisdictions, tax and income laws when it comes to negotiating, because many places do have laws around the exchange of value in not just dollars, but also in negotiations and stuff. So just make sure you check on that sort of thing. But that's one way, probably the most obvious way and the most sort of brief description I can have because it seems obvious, but a lot of people will just go there and say, you know, I work for $50 an hour, I'm not going to budge. But it might be really valuable for you to get your teeth cleaned then. It might be really valuable for you to get some help with your latest e-commerce project or to learn some content writing skills or to have some content writing done to save you time so you can move on to another project. So negotiating doesn't have to just be about the price, although that is where it kind of starts, I would say. It really can be bundling services together and making just Ultimately, what you're trying to do is make the deal make sense for both you and the client in the, in a fair, in a fair way. That's ultimately what you're trying to do. The next thing is phasing out. And once again, I don't mean by phasing out as in shutting down or getting rid of. I mean, taking a project and breaking it down into phases. We've mentioned this more than a few times on the show. Phasing out a project over times, over time can help you really balance the work and the budget. Usually when we do a phased out project, it's usually because the ba- the the budget just doesn't quite make sense. The client is close, like I've mentioned the 8 to 10,000 sort of quote deal thing that I mentioned over and over again in this episode. 
it, it just doesn't quite make sense. And so you can go in there and you can say, let's take like two or $3,000 worth of work. Let's move that into phase two. Phase two will begin in a month. Phase two will begin in a week. Phase two will begin when you have the money to pay for it. Stuff like that. So here's an example. If a client wants a custom e-commerce solution that plugs into their accounting and inventory system and is tailored exactly for everything they wanted, they want to do and already do in-house in their brick and mortar location. For that custom solution, they're going to need a big budget. There's no way around it. You're plugging into different services. You're working with their, uh, their people. So you're working with their already existing procedures. So there's a communication aspect, which is always or almost always cumbersome because you're going to have to have a back and forth. They're busy running the store that they're running because it's, like I said, a brick and mortar place. And so it, as you can see, like it's already piling on. So they're going to have to have a half decent budget for this. But because this brick and mortar location in this example is just getting into e-commerce, they may not have budgeted that much. They're not familiar with e-commerce. They you know, they're new to it. So they like maybe the section of the business doesn't quite have the, the funds required. They don't have an online presence yet. So their budget will maybe just doesn't quite reach the required amount. So instead of turning this job away, you can propose, say, two phases of this project and you can always propose more. It doesn't have to just be two. But for the sake of this example, phase one, which would be let's lower the amount of work for you, the developer, but still have the client be able to start their e-commerce business. That's how you're going to want to sell it. You're going to say, you know what? You know, your budget is just not quite where I'd like it to be. You know, I can't really do that, but I'd like to see you succeed. I'd like to see you get online with e-commerce business. So why don't we say, let's get rid of this custom nonsense and let's set you up with a, with a pre-existing e-commerce solution, a Shopify, a WooCommerce, et cetera, et cetera. There's a bunch of different, different ones out there. Why don't we get you set up? And have you start in the e-commerce world? You know, I want to see you succeed. Let's see you do it. Let's see if you can get this done. And then in phase two, it'll be down the road. Once you actually get a little bit of money from e-commerce, you start seeing how it works. You start seeing if it's going to work for your business. A budget can be slowly saved away from the brick and mortar location, from the e-commerce, maybe solely from the e-commerce. Maybe this will be a great thing and everyone loves the e-commerce store. Maybe people will hate it, right? So now they're not, now you're doing less work. You're getting paid a budget that you would think is fair for phase one. You're setting up a, a pre-existing solution with some customizations, obviously, like everything else for any business, setting up their products, their names, maybe changing the layout a little bit of a WooCommerce page or something like that, right? But you're not building this full custom solution. They're also, they also have less on the line and you can sell this as well. They also have less on the line in that instead of them coming to you with this huge custom project, you don't need to worry about all those intricacies, all those things that could go wrong. Like this is a big job building a custom e-commerce solution. It's a really, really big job and you don't want them to put a huge amount of time and money and effort into something that A, they're not familiar with, they have no experience with, and B, because they have no experience with it, the idea is untested. Their business may really flourish in the brick and mortar and it could just flop and completely fail with online orders. You don't know. So by selling it as phase two, you know, save up your money, get the budget stowed away, get a little bit of experience with sort of this pre-built or even more, you could even sell it as more basic e-commerce, right? Get, get sort of acquainted with it. Then down the road, once you have that budget, if you still want the custom solution, we can build it out for you. 
And as an added bonus, you can sell this to them as well. You could say, you'll have experience now with e-commerce. You'll have like real experience, not just on paper. So even though you had this full custom idea where you wanted it to plug into your uh, your point of sale terminal and your inventory system and everything else from your brick and mortar store, now you'll have real e-commerce experience. And so there will be holes filled there, features cut, features added. Maybe they don't need it to plug into their point of sale. Maybe they don't need to plug it into their inventory because they're selling so much they have another warehouse now or they have a different inventory system now. Maybe they didn't include the need to print out uh, labels easily, but one of these pre-existing, one of these pre-existing uh, e-commerce solutions has that. They used it. They loved it. Now they want that in their custom solution and their custom solution can come in phase two. And so you're just going to end up with a more refined product than you would if you just one phase built the whole product out, huge budget. They have no idea, you know, really in terms of real world, what is going to happen with e-commerce. And then there's going to be a bunch of problems, not because, you know, you made a buggy piece of software, hopefully you didn't, but if you made this full custom thing right off the hop, they're going to have a bunch of internal problems. Hey, you know, why do we only have one login? Where's the labels? Where's this? Where's that? It's stuff that they didn't think of and it's stuff that they didn't ask you for. And so you just didn't build it for them that way because you didn't know their internal procedure and they seemed confident. They knew, oh, you know, they're, they're successful already in brick and mortar, in a brick and mortar store. Why would, why would I, you know, make a bunch of suggestions? They know what they're doing for the most part. And then they're, procedure will start having problems and they'll need to pay another copious amount of money to have you do a big update, upgrade, whatever you want to call it, to make sure that this thing is just so and fits right in. So the phasing system is great for the budget. It's great for you because you can manage the work a little bit better, right? You're going to be able to have a little bit less work, have an appropriate budget for that, do the work slowly, have them develop their experience. And this, of course, is just one example. There's tons of examples of ways to have a project phased out into different phases in such a way where, you know, you might have four phases. You might have a a, a project where, and we've done this once or twice, where it's basically a small business site. They want an events section, but there's no events yet. Or the events are in the fall because it's a golf tournament or something and it's for the back to school thing. Well, it, you know, it's, let's say it's January. Well, school's well in session. So let's build in phase one, the small business site, and then start researching and looking at what we can do for the golf tournament. And if the golf tournament gets confirmed, then we can start building out an events page and you're paying two smaller bills that are friendly to you as the developer because you can work on other projects in between or during this because you're not completely swamped with this huge custom solution for events and you're able to slowly but surely sort of research and really dial in what you want into each of these project phases. Now, when breaking a project into phases, it's important, very important that you define these phases clearly. Define what you're going to do specifically in each phase so that scope creep, it's a bad word, it's a bad phrase, whatever in development, so that scope creep does not have you going 
and doing quote unquote phase one, but you really ended up doing phase one and phase two in one phase because it slowly crept up and kept like slowly create like phase two, uh, features and solutions started slowly creeping into phase one. You don't want that. You really, really don't want that. And so define specifically what you're going to be doing in each of these phases. Clearly lay out when future phases can be done, whether it be by start and end dates based on a schedule like the golf tournament example, or maybe when a client just calls you right based on the budget. Maybe when the client calls you when they have enough experience with e-commerce where they're like, you know what? I'm going to make like a really killer plan for this and I'm going to talk to my developer about this. Let's get this done. So really make sure that this is really defined. What are you doing in the phases? When the phases start and end, make sure that everything's laid out. You do not want to do phase one of a project, have no clear, clear definition of when phase two starts. You go to another client, start another project. You're swamped with that project. Person calls you phase one or phase two needs to be done next week. You don't want that type of stuff. So have this properly planned out, properly done, at least as best as you possibly can to ensure that there's no surprises and that you're making a nice dialed in project that works well and is worth the time for your development to you know continue over the years or over the months in different phases. And the client is getting a great value out of it. You're getting great value. They're getting great, great value. And there's no panic rushing and freaking out. Just do it, do it nice, polished. And that's it. In the same vein as this sort of dialing in and making sure everything's planned out correctly, the budget also needs to be planned out correctly. More specifically, excuse me, payments. When are those payments going to be made? When are those payments due? Because you're doing this project, maybe a client's going to think, oh, that's great. What we'll do is we'll price out each of these phases and I'll owe them all this money. And then in a year and a half, when phase one through four is finally complete, I'll just pay them then. Maybe that's how you want to do it for your particular deal, but that's not how I do it. I set up a payment structure here and I set up a schedule and I say, okay, we're doing phase one. Phase one needs to be paid. It needs to be paid on this day or the invoice will be sent out with a net 30 deadline effectively on this date. This is how this is going to work. Make sure that you, in my opinion, sort of collect payments and schedule payments according to your comfort zone. You're already accommodating this client by doing different phases for their project. So you want to be comfortable with what you're being paid with and make sure that there's clear things set up, clear limitations set up, such as, hey, I haven't received the payment for phase one and phase two is due to begin tomorrow. I'm not going to begin phase two until you pay me phase one. Stuff like that. Whatever you're comfortable with, whatever makes sense for you and the client, Set that up and make sure that's clearly defined and clearly, clearly defined and actually followed. Don't be super loose with it. We, meaning Mike and I, have a bad habit of being super loose with stuff where, you know, we, we really do stick to the deadlines. We tell somebody we're going to put out a beta of your site or we're going to put out the, 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 uh, the first public version, the MVP on, I don't know, January 1st, just making it up January 1st. Like, okay, great. So we do it, we do it either before January 1st or right on January 1st. So we, we abide by that. Then according to our, say, conversations we've had with them, we'll say, all right, on that day, on whatever day we end up putting it live, we're going to send you an invoice and that invoice is net 30. So we send the invoice out 
And then the person doesn't pay for 90 days, even though it's at 30. And we don't really chase. And so, you know, I, I know that I'm not necessarily practicing what I preach, but just trying to point out that, you know, it is, it is, it does take time. It does take uh, dedication to even just getting paid, but it's something that really needs to be done. Our most successful projects were projects where the plan went off, not without a hitch because nothing ever does, but the plan worked. We told them, this is how we're going to send the invoice. The person pays the invoice in the net 30 and it's over. They're happy with the project. We're happy with our payment and that's it. So, do do like keep in mind that sometimes you're going to have to chase people for the money and sometimes you're going to have to put those limitations in especially in a project that is phased into different phases put into different little development silos if you will do not do not excuse me let invoices pile up this puts the client in debt and it leaves you with little to no cash flow depending on how your business is set up you don't want to have someone majorly indebted to you, especially if they just quote unquote forget. Oh, I keep forgetting to pay this. Well, do they keep forgetting to pay all their other bills? Probably not. And so sometimes you just got to be a little strict with it and you got to say, no, these are the limitations. And I'm not willing to go beyond these limitations. So again, negotiate the deal according to how or according to your comfort zone and what works for you. But sometimes those limitations have to be really strict and you have to set those up before you actually go into the project and start doing each of the phases. The next thing here is budget cuts. So this is what I mean by this is specifically cutting things, cutting features and cutting luxuries to make a project easier to make and therefore less expensive to create. It's probably the most common way to make a budget work. It's just simply like you have a company will be like, man, you know, we're spending too much money. We're just going to lay some people off. In this context, it's similar to that, except it's cutting features. It's cutting little things that make it easier for you to develop and lowers the price for the client. So as developers and project managers, we're no strangers to MVPs, which is the minimal viable product. This is basically a bare a list, excuse me, of bare minimum features that make the project, you guessed it, viable. It makes the product useful. It could be released to the public in its MVP state. These MVPs give the product life, right? You offer it, or you could offer it to the public for use and testing. You can launch a site in its MVP form. And often that's what you do is you make a, an idea into its MVP and you put it out there. And then the public starts using it. They're effectively testing it for you and they can validate or invalidate your idea. They can say, this is stupid. Maybe no one shows up despite all your marketing and you're like, man, maybe this is a bad, a bad idea and it's not viable. So the public via feedback or just not showing up maybe can validate or invalidate your idea. And it's a way to get a, again, minimal viable product out there before making this huge bloated took you two years to make. And then I put it out and it made a dollar a month project. This kind of lets you cut it down and keep it manageable. Now, alongside the MVP, of course, this is in the planning stage, is typically a wish list. This contains a list of features that would be nice to have, but are not required to have the project be useful, and more importantly, not, not required to have the project up and running. Like phasing, in that previous segment I mentioned, this MVP, and it would be made first, right? All the actual important pieces are made first. And then they add, then you would add on the luxuries later. This is to, this is done to help manage time and money in generally an untested idea. Now, the problem is 
that those without industry experience, so not the project managers, not the developers, generally the clients, they don't have industry experience and they are not aware of the importance of this MVP model. And therefore, they'll a lot of the time come up with a huge list of everything they can think of as features for their product right off the hop. They just go, all right, you know, I want this, 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 this. You know, it'd be nice if like Facebook could come flying in and do like a barrel roll and whatever else, right? Um, they don't know. They don't know about MVPs. They don't know about having a project done in phases. They don't know how much the bu- the budget is going to balloon. They don't know how much work it is, right? So there's the problem. So when a, when a client comes to you with an absolutely bloated project that goes well beyond what you would consider the MVP for the problem they're trying to solve or the goal they're trying to reach. And more, more importantly in this, in this episode, the budget does not reach these aspirations. You know, this say MVP flush, MVP plus this massively bloated project does not match their budget. You know, they have a tiny little budget that could probably make the MVP, but they got 60 other features, right? At this time with the client, it's time to start talking about cutting superfluous or luxury features entirely in order to close the gap between your work rates and their budget. Now, this might sound similar to the breaking the project into phases, and it is, but the difference here is that unlike planning out future phases for later creation, this is especially true for untested ideas and, and particularly bloated ideas. What I do is I tell them, okay, you don't have the budget for this huge thing. Let's completely forget about these 10 features. Cut them out completely. We're not going to plan them out in a, in a future phase. We're not going to put them in a future phase. Your idea is untested and we're not going to do this. What we're going to do is this is, th- these are your 10 core features. I'm going to choose 10 features. These are your 10 core features. We're going to cut the rest of them. We're going to pretend they don't exist. You can put them on the wish list if you want, but I'm not going to, I'm not going to schedule them. I'm not going to plan for them. We want an MVP. This MVP is not bloated. It's minimal, right? It allows you to do the a minimal amount of work for a fair budget that they can more than likely or hopefully can afford. And that way they have this MVP created put out into the world, the public has the power to test and whatever and validate the idea. And then because I cut these superfluous features that were just done on paper because the client thought they'd be cool, which is a common, a very common thing we hear like, oh, I thought it'd be cool to have a clock on my site. And I thought it'd be cool to have background music. And it's like, no, 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 we're cutting this. We're not putting this into a phase. We're not planning this out. We're cutting these. Let the public come in. Let them give you validation. Let them test your idea. Let the public do what it does. Complain about stuff or compliment stuff or use it and then say, man, I wish it could do this. Let the public use your product all to death. Get all this feedback. Take it all constructively. Complaints and all. Take it all, right? And then we can justify maybe a future update, maybe a phase two with that validation. Or if there is no validation or no changes really asked for by the public, then forget about it. Don't worry about it. And just let it, let the project live the way it is. This way you're not planning super, like planning super expensive future phases and all this rest of the stuff. And your client's not paying tons of money for a project that 
really only needed the MVP to be great, or maybe it needs more than the MVP, but the public is the, are the people that are the users, I guess you should say more specifically, are the people that are going to do what they do. They're going to complain about the problems. They're going to compliment the good parts. They're going to use the parts that they like. They're going to not use the parts that they don't like or the parts that they just find useless. Getting all that data lets you then choose what features you should add from your wish list that were cut. So I just want to be clear here that cutting ideas versus the phasing out, like choosing the, I probably should have a different, a different thing than saying phasing out, but cutting ideas out or cutting features out versus choosing specific phases is different. With the specific phases, you're actually planning on doing effectively these wish list items. You're planning on doing these in the future on some sort of schedule. But with this, with the budget cuts, you're just cutting them. You know, let's cut this out. This is this is $1,000 to make. Get that out of here. This is $2,000 to make. Get that out of here. This is $5,000. Get this out of here. Like, get it out of here. Don't even think about it. Make an MVP. Get the feedback you need. Understand what you're doing. And then approach me later if you want. And we can do an upgrade, update, whatever, based upon what the public slash the users said that was good, bad, et cetera, et cetera. This gives you the power to finish a project. So this is what this is the reason why this is different. If you are, let's say, approached by somebody and they have this really big superfluous idea and you go in, like I just said, and you cut out all these things, you're effectively cutting out all this thing, all these things. Let's say the client, obviously the client has to agree with this. You know, you're going to cut this, 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 and we're going to make this project a $5,000 project. They have a $5,000 budget. We're going to make this a $5,000 project. Great. You make the $5,000 project and you have no future phases planned. You can mention to them like, hey, you know, in the future, if you ever need any work on this, just let me know. But you're done this project. You're free from it. You don't have you don't have a maintenance contract set up with them. You don't have this. You don't have that. You don't have that. And so, boom, you're set up. You're good. You can just go on to another project. You don't have to stick with this phased approach where it could take months or years and you're sort of quote unquote, obligated to do it either via contract or just verbally you've said, hey, you know, maybe we should do these phases. This is very much like a let's make this project this small. Call me if you need me later. And then you can move on to something else. This is perfect for people that like to move on from projects or maybe people that aren't going to be sticking around in the industry or just testing the waters, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I know I say that a lot, but et cetera. (laughs) Okay. now, personally, I acknowledge that it's important, Okay, to be or rather in project planning to be able to plan the projects properly, manage the budgets. But I will say this about specifically budget cuts and cutting features is that I, I sometimes find it lazy. The reason why I say this is because I find that some companies, even just public companies in general, like companies that we are all aware of, not necessarily publicly traded, but just companies that we're aware of will start using cuts, like cutting employees via layoffs, cutting features to save money, you know, cutting devs to do this and that, cutting budgets so they have to hire a bunch of devs that have less experience and stuff like that. I sometimes find this almost like a comfort zone excuse. And it becomes a de facto response sometimes whenever something's a little too expensive. And instead of you saying, you know, this feature is super cool, I really want this, 
I'm going to tighten my belt a little bit and get this dev to make this awesome because I know it's going to bring me revenue or I know the clients are going to love this. It can become really easy to just do something like, ah, you know, can't afford that $1,000 feature. Just cut it. When it would add more than $1,000 in value, or at least according to your your uh, you know own research and your own marketing team and your own uh, you know knowledge of your customers, you think it's going to add more than a thousand dollars, but you still just cut the feature for no reason because it's easy, right? Just ah, just get rid of it. Ah, we'll do it later. Blah blah blah. So I want to you know kind of zoom in on the fact that it's very possible to just make cutting features a habit, not just from you from the development standpoint on a client project, but your clients. Or if you're working, let's say you're working for a big company, your employer at that point might just, that might be their only thing. All they do is reduce things. Oh, it's getting a little too expensive. They don't innovate at all. They just immediately start cutting employees, cutting this, cutting that. And cutting things helps, of course. That's why I mentioned it in this episode. But again, it can become this very sort of comfort zone de facto response that's lazy, really. And so the reason why I mentioned this is because I, I really want you, before you cut things, to really read into the feature and analyze its viability. Whether your client does it, if you're a freelancer, um, or you're not like, if we're not uh, working for them, like they're not our employer, you're a freelancer, or you're working at an agency and you're, a client comes to you, you know, even though you're not as into their company as you would be if you're an employer, I want you to really sort of check the viability of things before you cut them. Don't spend hours and hours checking. That's not what I mean. But just, you know, not, you know, some things you're just going to cut. Background music, you're, you're going to cut. <laughs> Stuff like that. Okay. That just comes from inexperience. But really kind of take a look and be like, man, this calendar, you know, is, is, is going to take a long time. It's going to take two grand. I think we should just cut it. That's a big difference from being like, you know what? Let's, let's look at this calendar. Let's look at this calendar and let's see. Is this viable for them? Check their competitors. Do they have calendars? Check around the industry. Do they have calendars? Are the calendars needed? How much, how much value do you think the calendars are going to add? Talk to the client. Do they think it's going to add a lot? And just make sure you're analyzing the viability of features before you're cutting them. I believe personally that it's important to have a mix of budget management and analyzing and like and the analysis of the features and then knowing when to cut, when to break things into phases, when to push things off, when to make things simpler. It's this really delicate sort of art that you'll slowly start to get with experience, I'm sure. But, you know, knowing when to cut a feature, I think, is actually a really valuable skill in comparison to someone who just cuts everything. Ah, it's a little inconvenient, cut it. Ah, it's a little bit this, cut it. Because sometimes you're going to cut something, like I said, that you're going to pay $1,000 for or a client would pay $1,000 for and it would make their website make $2,000 a month more because people like it so much. You don't know. And so I just want to make it clear that, you know, cutting's great for saving money, but you have to look at how valuable that feature is and how could you achieve that feature in such a way that it's fair for yourself and the client or your employer, whatever? So just something to keep in mind. Moving on to the final segment of the show here, pitfalls and warnings. Lots of do nots in here. <laughs> do not do a deal that does not make sense 
for you. So every deal is different. Everyone's in a different part of their, of their uh, career. Like I said, some people will do work for very cheap to make a couple portfolio projects. That's a part of the learning journey. Whether you go there or not, it's up to you. If the deal does not make sense. You can and you should say no. Again, you are the only one that can really check its viability, but do not be beat up or let's say financially abused by a prospective client just because they you know, really want something and they really think that you should do it for cheaper. If the deal does not make sense for you and the client, maybe you should just back away from that deal and move on to something else. And again, that's a skill in and of itself, knowing when to walk away. That's another skill that you can learn and get better at. Second thing here, do not constantly take jobs for cheap or free to build a portfolio. Like I mentioned the first point there. If you make a habit out of this, so if let's say you're just starting, got your first client, you want a, you want a thousand, they're going to pay you 200. Mm, okay, let's say you're willing to do it for whatever reason you're willing to do it. Okay, great. So you do it. Next client comes around, you want a thousand again. They're going to pay you $250, maybe 200, whatever, around the same price as the other, as the other person. Okay, fair enough. Word starts to spread from those clients to their friends that work on probably similar budgets that they got great work done from you and that they should go to you. You're going to start attracting demanding clients that have no budget. The reason why I put the word demanding in there is because we've seen it on Twitter. We've seen people, you know, meme it to death, but there's a lot of clients out there that are really demanding and they have like no budget. They, they want your help all the time. They want a hundred percent uptime. They want you available all the time. They want to call you whenever they got a new idea. They want to, they want you there all the time. They want you dedicated not to the project, but to them and their company. They want you, they want you there for $200 and $200 once, by the way. So a lot of the time, and, and not everyone's like this. I want to be clear. Not everyone's demanding. Some people are fully aware that they have a small budget and they only expect small budget things. But just you will start if you keep, if you keep working with people that don't have large budgets, you will start attracting clients and more than likely demanding clients that have no budget. And then you'll be working, let's say at the rate that you should be making $50,000 a year and you'll be getting paid 20 across a bunch of these clients. So just something to consider there. Just make sure you watch yourself. Make sure that you don't keep don't keep undervaluing your work and do not be financially abused by people. Next one here. Do not buy will make it big stories. Unlike um, well unless you really believe in the person you know, I do want to put a caveat in here. If you really believe in the person, if you really believe in the website and you really want to do it, that's one thing. That's a, that's one of those things in the deal, right? Where every deal is a little bit different. Maybe you really want to make this site, but the budget sucks and they're selling you on, Hey, you know, I'll pay you 200. Now you want a thousand dollars, pay you 200 now. And I'll pay you 1500 later when the site makes it big. That's the type of thing. That's the type of thing that they might try to sell you on. And unless for some reason you really believe in the message the site's sending or you really want to make the site or you really believe in the person, I would say don't fall into this trap because 
you'll end up doing long hours. You're doing a ton of tweaks because a lot of these type of sites are passion projects. And statistically speaking, a lot of things just don't make it. A lot of things don't make it big. A lot of things don't make any money or they make minimal money. And if the person really cares this much about their passion project, they'll save up enough money to pay you fairly or they'll find a cheaper provider. Don't be manipulated into, oh, we'll make it big, we'll make it big. And then this is this is what happens. We'll make it big. I need a five-page site. Okay, great. You go and you make the five-page site. You take 200 when you wanted 1,000. Not too good, but I mean, not absolutely horrible, I guess. And then, oh, well, the site can't make it big unless we get this feature. How much is it going to cost? Well, you know, you quote it out. Let's say it's a slider. Just, I don't know, just making this up on the, as I go. You want another thousand dollars. I can't, like, I just can't believe you'd charge me that. You know, we're on the path here, man. We're going to make it. We're going to make it. Are we? Or am I for you and I'm going to get the table scraps? Or am I going to try to make it for you and I'm going to get the table scraps or nothing? Because there's no contract in this. Right? So this ha- this has happened to us. Absolutely. You just really need to watch yourself and you need to put your foot down. And I mentioned limitations in this episode several times. You need to have those limitations. You need to really think about hey, I'm not willing to do this for this amount of money and I'm not willing to wait until this till this site makes it big. It's not going to happen. I'm not going to do that. I'll help you make it big for money. And if you want to go to your other to your friend or your your what whoever because they're cheaper, go ahead. And I, I don't mean to sound crude or anything like that, but I mean you're going to you're going to deal with financial hardships because they have a passion project that they don't want to pay you for. Like come on, right? So just something that we've fallen into more than once, something to consider and something that we basically stonewall now. Oh, we'll make it big, will you? Yeah, that's nice. You can pay me now as an investment for you for you making it big in the future. <laughs> it's basically, I'm not that crude on a business meeting, but you get my drift. Like, oh, oh, you're going to make thousand dollars a month from this site in a, in a few months are you oh that's great so you can pay me my thousand dollars that i wanted and then in a few months you'll make more than that over the next 12 months after it starts making a thousand dollars oh but i can't afford that right now well sounds like you don't sounds like uh you're gonna have to save up man sorry something you know whatever so again i'm not that crude in business meetings but just trying to bring the reality of the situation to this show that that's that's effectively what's happening that's effectively what can happen and we see all this. We'll make it big stories all the time. It's a it's a nightmare. And this transitions nicely into the next part here, which is do not fall for the my cousin, mother, daughter, friend, brother, whoever can do this for $100. Okay, then why don't you go to your family member or your friend? Why are you talking to me? We get this all the time. Honestly, you get this probably more than serious clients. People constantly say this type of stuff all the time. Hey, man, like, you know, I need a, an Uber Eats clone. Uber Eats is a big freaking company. Okay. I can make you, you know, from the technical perspective, I can make it, I guess. How much money do you have? hundred bucks. Uh, nope. It's going to be 20 grand or more, man. Sorry. Again, just making budgets up on the fly. It's going to be 20 grand or more. Sorry, man. 
oh, well, my cousin could do this for $100. It's ridiculous that you web developers charge too much. And we get these type of calls. We've gotten these type of calls before. We've mentioned them on the show before. Crazy. Absolutely not. Uber East has a huge, Uber in general has a big development team and a lot of people that work there in marketing and development and uh, everything in between, infrastructure, legal, I'm sure, whatever, right? It's a big company. And you want me to make you, I mean, admittedly, just the site, like just a an ordering food site for $100 because, and, and your justification to me is that your cousin would do it for $100. Why are you shopping around then? Were you trying to get, were you trying to get it for 35? Were you trying to get it for 10? And here's the thing is, at least for me, when I first started, I feel bad. And I'm like, oh, great. Like now people are going to think we're overpriced and this and that. All these things cross my mind. I'm a bit of a worrier myself. Not a bit. I'm a worrier, I should just say. And I worry about all kinds of things. And I'll think, oh, great. Like maybe I should accommodate this person, you know, like try to phase, like do the phasing or like try to do something to make this budget work. This is one of those things where the, the disparity is is like $100 to $20,000. There's no way. $100 to $1,000 is, is hard to justify, hard to change that disparity. It's hard to do. And again, this is part of you don't want to be financially abused. If this person like if you come to me and you like not in a joking way, say my cousin couldn't do this. My mom, my dad, my friend, again, whoever can do this for a hundred dollars. Why are you charging this much? I'm basically done with you. I don't even want to work with you because every time I quote you something, you're going to be like, man, my dad said he'd do it for 30 bucks. Oh, okay. So am I in a bidding war with your dad? Go, go pay your dad 30 bucks and tell him to do it. And also, why are you like, are you, are you a vigilante getting quotes from people in the industry to then just complain about it to try to lower the price for everybody? Like, are you a price vigilante in the web development world? Get out of here. Done with you. Go away. Sounds harsh, but it's true. Next thing here. Take price feedback. So I know I just, you know, sort of quote unquote threw that person away that said my cousin can do it for 30 bucks, but use all the feedback that you get, ridiculous or not, as feedback. Take it, take it constructively. Do not back down. Usually you get sort of a knee jerk reaction, especially if you're on the phone of a, whoa, 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 that's way too much, right? Don't necessarily back down. Don't necessarily back down, but Always take things constructively as much as you can. Check if your pricing makes sense frequently. Make sure you're on par with someone at your skill level in the industry and you know, your local economy and, you know, the, the supply and demand of skills and et cetera, et cetera. Every place around the world is different. Make sure it makes sense. Make sure your pricing makes sense. And if it does and you, you've justified it, then try to stick to it. I know that this episode has been about trying to make a customer budget work so that you can land that project and get to work. But it's also largely been about avoiding financial abuse and avoiding getting yourself in a hole of you getting paid effectively a dollar an hour or something really low on a project. You want to avoid that type of stuff, of course. And so if you think that your work is valued at whatever it is, $50 an hour, let's say for the sake of example, you do the research and you find that in your research that it is $50 an hour, 
then try to stick to it. Various deals and various financial situations that you or your country or your family and everything else that's all around you, you know, various financial situations may change it so that maybe you have to take 30 an hour or 20 an hour or whatever. But again, try to avoid the financial abuse. Try to, you know, not undervalue your work. Try all these things. Negotiate. Make the project cut into phases. Do all these different things that you can do. Cut features, right? To try to make it so that the deal makes sense for you. You have to make it so the deal makes sense for you and the client. Whatever you're getting out of it, whether you're getting a tooth cleaning, like I said, some teeth cleaning, whether you're getting a portfolio piece, you know, you're if assuming you're trying to be, and I hope you are trying to be fair, this is this is what you really need to do. You really need to stick to your guns, be analytical, be smart, know what you're worth. Know what you're comfortable taking. And just try not to get yourself into some sort of problem is effectively what I'm trying to get at. Don't don't get yourself into a project that's going to, quote unquote, make it big and you make a dollar an hour. That's outrageous and it's ridiculous. I do want to mention one other thing, though, and I wrote this in and I I was going to skip it. But Mike and I have done this in the past and we've kind of stopped doing it. And it's one more little sort of budget tip, a little bonus tip, if you will. It's largely in the negotiation string of things. I think it's actually in that part of the show notes. And that is for uh, not passive income, but consistent income, cash flow. Mike and I have in the past, and we probably still do it, but we we kind of stepped away from this, is instead of you having to phase out a project into various phases, instead of you having to cut features, you can negotiate for a payment plan. You can negotiate for a payment, a plan, excuse me, a payment plan. I'm trying to think of how to word this. So that it makes sense for both you and the client. It respects their budget. It respects your income level and it respects hopefully both your schedules. And that is to spread payments out over some sort of time, probably also spreading the work out. An example is we have frequently, and I mean like frequently done this over and over again, gone in, quoted, say two grand person can't do that. I say, no worries. What's your budget? Eh, you know, I could afford 300 bucks. No worries. Give me 150 bucks a month for X amount of time. I'll do your maintenance on the site. I'll do this and that. So I'll, you know, do a little bit more work. Over that term, you'll pay me more than the initial quote and you'll pay me minimal or nothing up front. We found this worked for us in the beginning and it might work for you, which is why I mention it now. It might be a helpful piece of advice. But we found that we often have to chase people for the payments. Um, you know, it's a kind of a pain. Some people want to change to annual and then they're like, well, why isn't there a discount for annual? And it's like, well, man, I negotiated at the rate. I didn't like I negotiated basically for a, a dollar amount that I split up. I didn't I'm not a, you know, a software as a service company where I'm offering you an annual bonus and or an annual discount and stuff like that. 
And so this is why I kind of, I kind of didn't want to mention it, but it's something else to consider. And it's largely in that negotiation, like string of things. So just something else to consider that, you know, you could take this as, like I said, a bonus tip. Stretching out payments, just like how we people finance phones and cars and stuff like that, you could largely, similarly in payment structure anyway, have them effectively be like, you know what, man, like, you know, I'll do a little extra work for you. But in in the long term, you're going to pay me 2000 instead of 1500 but you're going to pay me over a year and a half. You're going to pay me over a year, whatever it is that you decide, and I'll do a little extra work for it. And that really comes into that negotiation string. But again, do remember, you do have to chase people for payments. And assuming they don't pay and it's a bit of a mess that way. And you're also starting to get into the territory of working with lower budget clients, which may mean that they might try to stiff you for a bill or two in a year and it can get a little bit messy. So it's a more involved process, but it helped Mike and I get started, which is why I ultimately decided to mention it. And we do have a bunch of clients still on that type of plan. And of course, people just on regular maintenance plans too. That's normal. But just something else I wanted to mention that I wasn't sure if I was going to mention. And I think I think that's largely it for this episode. Uh, I think it's my second solo episode ever. So uh, I hope that you uh, enjoyed it. I'm trying to pull up my Patreon uh, document because just like when I'm with Mike, I forgot to pull it up like for the 10,000th time. Can't speak today either. But anyway, if you enjoyed episodes like this, come check out our entire library of episodes. We've got a whole bunch of episodes now. 211 of them, I want to say. Again, there's one weird episode in the pipe because it's still being worked on, so I may have messed up the number. But anyway, if you want to support episodes like this, patreon.com slash HTML, all the things. And many thanks to our $3 tier patrons, Ryan Gatchel from Blue Black Digital on blueblackdigital.com, Chris from Self-Made Web Designer, selfmadewebdesigner.com, Tim from The Web Hacker on thewebhacker.com, DL Ford from dl4.io, Bib Hashdash from Nineblock Media, nineblockmedia.com, Jason from Geek Life Radio via geekliferadio.com, Michael Curie from MC Web Studio via mcwebstudio.ca, Magnus from YesWeb via yesweb.se, Jeff from Twitter via at the Jeff McHale, and Fire Ant Season via Fire Ant Season. Feel free to leave a comment or a review on the platform that you are listening to this on. And this outro will sign just me off. You've been listening to HTML All The Things Podcast. Web development, web design, and small business. We hope you've gotten some useful and practical information from this show. And we hope you appreciate that we talk to you like human beings. And we hope you had some fun. We'll be back soon. But in the meantime, hit us up on social media. On Facebook, Instagram, and Patreon at HTML All The Things. And on Twitter at HTML Everything. Until next time, this is HTML All The Things. Signing off.